And so uh, now let me invite uh, John Dixon uh, to our platform, and I get to say a couple things about John. Good to see you, my friend. Hi, mate. You ready? Uh, yeah. Good. That's always good. <laughs> uh, John uh, hails from Sydney, Australia, and is uh, currently a professor at Wheaton College in the Chicago area just across the lake. So let's just say that your commute has shortened a little bit it is. over yeah. the last uh, couple years. And so John has written a, a bunch of books, and uh, one of the books that John has authored is this one here. It's called Bullies and Saints, and I, it's just kind of like the best and worst of Christianity, like century after century, what was the best that Christianity did and kind of the worst. So it was kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I learned recently that John's book, Bullies and Saints, has been nominated for the best Christian book of the year. <laughs> sort of. Sort of. Sort of. Sort of. Sort of. Curb your enthusiasm just a little. It has been nominated as the Christian book of the year in the Dutch language. <laughs> so uh, for those of you in watching in other parts of the country, you might be thinking, best Christian book of the year in Dutch? Who cares? We care. <laughs> Even those of us without a traceable element of Dutch ancestry, we care. And so to assist John and to show how we're in this with him, I went through the Ada Bible Church directory to answer the question, who cares? And here's a partial answer. The Vander Arks, the Vander Klocks, the Vander Lons, the Vander Lux, the Vander Meers, and the Vander Molens. <laughs> we care. The DeBoers, the DeGrasse, the DeGroots, the DeHans, the DeVries, the DeWitts, and the DeYoungs. We care. The Ludumas, Postumas, Dozumas, Hedingas, and Heisingas <laughs> care. And so, John, we share your joy. <laughs> And a week from Friday, they will announce the winner in Dutch. Call your grandma for help. I don't know what to do here. All right. Now, uh, John, uh, a professor at Wheaton University, he's got a heavy teaching load. In addition to that, he's uh, writing books uh, constantly and other projects. He hosts the uh, podcast Undeceptions that I absolutely love. And with all that going on still finds time uh, to travel over from time to time to serve the family of Ada Bible Church. John, we love you. We're grateful for you. Take a moment just to welcome John to our platform <laughs> today. I just love the surprise of how I'm going to be introduced each time I come here. It's never the same, and uh, there's nothing like it anywhere else I go in the world. <laughs> um, I don't know if uh, this has ever happened in America. Uh, I think it should. But in Australia a few years ago, Australian Christians got a very public report card. A major research firm, social research firm, conducted a pretty big survey to find out what the average secular Australian thought of Christians. And then they compiled this list of the top 10 perceptions of Christians in Australia. And it wasn't awesome, I must say. Amongst the top 10 were things like hypocritical, opinionated, old-fashioned, judgmental, traditional. It's not exactly the Sermon on the Mount, I think you'll agree. Uh, I mean, I can handle opinionated. 
I mean, we are. Like, we think there's stuff that's true and other stuff that's not. Anyone agree with that? Okay, so we're opinionated. Everyone is, except the person who doesn't know what they think. Uh, Old-fashioned, I could even put up with that. We believe in some old, funny stuff, don't we? Because it's better than most of the new stuff. Um, traditional, oh, I guess some of us are tradi- pretty traditional. Not, not so much here. But hypocritical, judgmental. I'm pretty sure Jesus said that wouldn't happen. I'm pretty sure he said it in the Sermon on the Mount, not to be hypocrites, not to judge, lest we judge. So a lot of us Christians in Australia, when this came out a few years ago, were just a little bit deflated and we wanted to do some soul searching. Because it's a long way from what Jesus said would happen in the Sermon on the Mount, right toward the front of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, he said the impact of Christians would be awesome. This famous passage, many of you will know it, he says, you, and it's a plural, so you guys, right? You guys are the light of the world. The Christian community collectively is the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And yes, I wore the t-shirt today, yes. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now this idea of a world light actually comes from the Old Testament. Everyone in Jesus' audience there in Galilee knew their Bibles and knew that in Isaiah 49, the prophet had spoken of someone who would be a light of the world. We're not quite sure in context who it is. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then just a few chapters later, in chapter 51, Isaiah says, Listen to me, my people. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. This light is God's instruction, God's justice, and somehow it will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus gathers all this Old Testament stuff up into one statement. You lot are the light of the world. You disciples, you'll be the light to the ends of the earth. You will take my instruction to the ends of the earth. You will show my justice to the ends of the world. You will bring salvation. The report card that Jesus expected was not hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and so on, but that they would be a light to the world. You know what? In the first few centuries, Jesus was absolutely right. I mean, Jesus is always right, but particularly right in the first few centuries because it is a mystery to historians just how Christianity grew in those first 300 years. Within 20 years, Christianity had boomed out of Jerusalem into Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, and uh, Rome or Italy. But within 300 years, they had spread all the way across North Africa, up into Spain and Gaul, and all the way up into little old Britannia. It is astonishing 
And historians have tried to puzzle through the growth rate of early Christianity. And it's very hard to do. It has to, we have to analyze both documents and inscriptions and then do sort of population analyses to work out how far and wide and how big Christianity was by, say, the year 300. But here are the eight best attempts. And don't worry, we're not going to go through them one by one. This is not my class at Wheaton College. Um, but here are the eight best famous attempts of ancient historians trying to work out what percentage of the Roman Empire which was 60 million people, what percentage was Christian by the year 300? And you can see the different estimates there. Don't worry about the estimates. Let's just average the estimates. Then, then we're at least, you know, vaguely in the ballpark. But what it basically means is that by the year 300, 7.3% of the Roman Empire's 60 million people were Christian. That's 4.4 million people within 300 years. Now, that is astonishing because Christians started as just 100 or so people and ended up 4.4 million in such a short time. Historians are scratching their heads as to how this uh, could possibly have happened because that is a growth rate of 30% per decade for 300 years straight. We would call that revival if it happened for two years, but this happened for 300 years. And the contrast with our context is dramatic and a little bit depressing because the church in great America the greatest Christian nation on earth for much of its history, is collapsing. Gallup Poll has been tracking church membership since uh, 1940. And interestingly, for the 60 years between 1940 and 2000, there was only a 3% dip, hardly detectable. But look what's happened since the year 2000. In the last 20 years, a 23% drop in church membership. So I believe that American Christians, just as Aussie Christians, should be asking, how can we turn this around? And I think part of us should be asking, how did the early church pull this off? And what's more, how did they do it in those first 300 years when they had no armies They had no legislative or political power at all. And they didn't even have much money. And yet they changed the world. I think part of the answer to this question is this. They radically demonstrated the message of Christ's love and sacrifice with deeds of love and sacrifice. They radically demonstrated the word with deed, which is your tandem theme, right? And this has to be part of the answer because we have evidence even from non-Christians. We have evidence from people who hated Christians that it was the dastardly goodness of Christians that won so many people to the faith. Those rotten Good deeds doing Christians. Let me introduce you to um, this guy. I don't know if you've ever heard of Emperor Julian before, but the pagan Emperor Julian, uh, just need to say, he hated your guts. I mean, I know sometimes we complain that our government is against Christianity or the elites are against... Nah, by comparison, they love us. 
This guy hated Christians. When he came to power in 361, any Christian that was within the ranks of the civil service, which was many thousands of people, were sacked. All of them lost their job. Imagine that. One of, one of his worst laws was uh, sacking all Christians who had academic posts in, in the academies throughout the Roman Empire. They all lost their jobs. And any Christian who was a slave, who had been freed by their Christian master, which Christians did a lot, Christian masters would free their slaves, but everyone, as a result of his law, was re-enslaved to another family. That is the government hating you. But even this guy recognised that it was Christian benevolence, love and kindness that was converting the Roman Empire and he wanted to stop it. And I'm not just making this up. Here's a letter he wrote to one of his pagan officials and you, you can see it for yourself. He writes, why do we not observe that it is Christians' benevolence to strangers their care for the graves of the dead. That may sound weird, but it's just that Christians gave free burials to people, which was such a gift, especially to the poor who couldn't afford a proper burial, but Christians gave them free burial. Their care for the graves of the dead, the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase their atheism. He called them atheists because they didn't believe in the Greek and Roman gods. But he goes on, I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues. In every city establish frequent hostels that in order that strangers may profit by our benevolence. He goes on, for it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. So here, from the pen of someone who hated Christians, is evidence that he thought the gospel was expanding because Christians did deeds of love and kindness. Now, this is kind of what Jeff wanted me to talk about, but Jeff asked specifically for me to give some flesh to this theme in the early centuries, which is really my playground academically, those first six, seven hundred years. And so I want to introduce you to six faces that I think are the face of this near miraculous conversion of the Roman world to the Christian faith. And the first three faces I can do together because they are the most awesome Christian family in world history. Here are three siblings, Basil, Gregory, and their big sis, Macrina. Now, on the one hand, these people were huge nerds. They were quite elite. They were extremely well-educated. They're contemporaries of pagan Emperor Julian. In fact, Basil went to school in the Academy of Athens with Emperor Julian. And then their paths took very different turns. But especially Basil and Gregory, they were massive theologians. They were pastors of pastors, what we call bishops, overseers. And so they looked after, Christianly speaking, huge numbers of people. And their key contribution intellectually was they defended the Trinity against internal heresy and from pagan mockery. The doctrine of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons but one God, was defended by these guys successfully in preaching, debating, and print. 
But I love that both these men thought their big sister was the best teacher they'd ever known. Gregory describes Macrina as his Plato. Now, we have no idea how Macrina got such an elite education herself. We don't have the documentation for that. But they credit her with their intellectual prowess. But the reason I'm telling you this is because here are three people absolutely committed to the word, to doctrine, to the Bible, to the gospel preaching. And yet they are all three absolutely committed to demonstrating the message of Christ's love and sacrifice with deeds of love and sacrifice. So let me talk you through what they did. In the case of Macrina, she is absolutely amazing. She sold her own estate, which was quite a big estate, gave everything to the poor, then lived out her life in a community of other women who were little nerds. They'd study and pray. And then they'd tend the fields. They had their own farm, so they were entirely self-sufficient like an early kibbutz, I guess. But they'd be studying from very early on, and, and then in the afternoons, they'd go out rescuing babies. The amazing thing is, together these women rescued infants that had been left abandoned and then raised these children within their community. It, it's hard for us to get our heads around because Christianity has changed our Western world. But in this period, there was no moral shame and certainly no law against leaving your newborn at a rubbish dump if you didn't want it. If it had some deformity, if it were a girl, if you just didn't feel you could feed another mouth, you could leave it there and walk away. Maybe someone would pick it up and raise it. Maybe slavers would go around and pick it up or maybe the elements would take it. It didn't matter. Macrina and her crew of godly, nerdy women walked around picking up infants and raising them in their home to adulthood. This was such a big deal in the early church that it is no exaggeration to say there are millions of people who are alive today because their ancestors were picked up as abandoned newborns by Macrina and her kind. Gregory, her brother, who writes the biography, actually said that one of the saddest things about watching her die was hearing these little girls that have now all grown up wailing and weeping at the death of this woman, this woman who had given them life. Speaking of Gregory, Gregory is, yes, the biggest nerd of them all. In fact, you know, there is still a world conference every four years to study the philosophy of Gregory. I mean, you may have never been because you're not into Gregory, but there are nerds who turn up every four years. But, but, but better than that, Gregory was the first full-blown abolitionist that we know of in world history. The first person to preach against slavery, root and branch. If you owned a slave in his region, and he was a bishop of a massive region, this is the kind of thing you had to put up with in church. I'm quoting from a sermon of his uh, against slaveholding. 
Remember, we're in the 300s AD here. You condemn man to slavery when his nature is free and he possesses free will? For what price, tell me? What did you do? What did you find in existence worth as much as this human nature? How many coins did you get for selling the being shaped by God? God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. Whenever a human being is for sale, therefore, nothing less than the owner of the earth is led into the sale room. But has the scrap of paper and the written contract and the counting out of coins deceived you into thinking yourself the master of the image of God? What folly! No one could own a slave in this man's region. I'll say more about this attempt to free slaves in a moment, but I just want to acknowledge the obvious, that there was a revival of slavery in the modern world, 15, 16, 17th centuries, on an industrial scale, and you know it. And you know that Christians were complicit in that modern slavery. But I want to say in the ancient world, the only people against slavery were Christians. How tragic that we lost that part of being the light of the world. But now I hear you say, but what about their brother? What about Basil, I hear you say? It went so badly at the other service, I thought, I'm not going to do that again at the other one. And then I did it again. And why do they call him the Great? I mean, that, that, that is what, you know, if you type into Google, Basil the Great, it goes to this, he's the greatest Basil, the greatest Basil ever. Imagine being the greatest Basil. Well, the cool thing about Basil, apart from being a super nerd who went to school with the emperor, who defended the Trinity successfully, he started history's first public hospital. Amazing. Yes, there were hospitals in uh, the Roman uh, armies, but they weren't available to anyone but Roman soldiers, right? But they needed hospitals on the battlefield, right? But, but there were no, no one had thought of having a hospital that you could just walk into if you were sick and get free help. Basil thought, ah, what a great idea. I'm going to take the best of Greek medicine, combine it with Christian compassion, and found a healthcare center with six separate departments, one for the poor, one for the homeless, one for foundlings, like his big sister had been doing, one for lepers, another for the aged and infirm, and a hospital proper for the sick. This was a massive complex, became famous around the Roman world, free health care to anyone. Now, I know as soon as that came out of my mouth, I thought, ooh, you're in America, John. Don't talk about free healthcare. Okay, forget the modern politics of this. Christians came up with this idea that the poor should be cared for with the best medicine available. And you know what they thought they were doing? We know, because we actually have documentation of this, that the Basil thought he was doing what Jeff mentioned last week in his sermon. Remember he talked about Jesus healing the blind and the deaf and raising the dead as a little trailer of the 
upcoming feature film, The Kingdom of God. Remember he said this? Um, Go back and listen to last week's sermon. It was awesome. He was saying, um, the kingdom of God will come and make all things well. The blind will see, the dead will be raised. God will make everything well. Well, Jesus' healings were little miniature trailers, little previews of the coming kingdom. Now, that's exactly what Basil and his crew thought they were doing, giving little pictures of the coming kingdom of God where God will make all things well. Now, this idea of a healthcare center for the poor took off. And within 20 years, we have the fourth face I want to introduce you to. Anyone heard of Fabiola of Rome? Anyone put your hand up if you've heard of Fabiola? I know Jeff has. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. She was one of the ancient world's most significant figures. Uh, she, She was an elite probably the wealthiest woman in the Roman Empire. She was actually from the, one of the founding seven families. There were seven families that were like the famous families that founded Rome, and she's from one of them. And I won't tell you the details, but uh, she went through a terrible marital situation, which she was fortunately able to get out of, and she became a Christian. And this woman was so thankful to the Lord She decided to sell her vast properties, turn it into cash, and found the world's second public hospital. And we have eyewitness contemporary evidence describing this. Let me quote from Jerome, her buddy. She preferred to break up and sell all that she could lay hands on of her property. And when she had turned it into money, she disposed of everything for the benefit of the poor. First of all, she founded an infirmary and gathered into it sufferers from the streets, giving their poor bodies, worn with sickness and hunger, all a nurse's care. How often did she wash away the purulent matter from wounds? Pus. We're talking about the most high-born woman in Rome who would never have touched a poor person before her conversion. And now she is wiping their wounds clean. How often did she wash away the purulent matter from wounds which others would not even endure to look upon? She gave food with her own hand. And even when a man was but a breathing corpse, she would moisten his lips with drops of water. Uh, We know from contemporary records that when she died, her funeral was one of the biggest events in all of Roman history. It was compared to the great triumph of General Pompey, first century BC. He'd come back from conquering nations, and half of Rome turned out to welcome Pompey. Apparently, the same thing happened for her funeral. I mean, she is embodying exactly what Jesus said would happen. Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Oh boy, Rome glorified God as a result of this woman. Basil's hospital and Fabiola's second hospital launched a cascade of hospitals over the next two centuries. Literally, throughout the Western world world 
like from Italy to Gaul or France, um, up into um, uh, Germany and across into Spain, um, there were thousands of hospitals, all of them run by the church. All of them. Even in faraway Spain, here's my fifth face, is a man called Masona. He also was a pastor of pastors, elevated to be a bishop of a region, which just means he took care of the pastors of a massive region of Spain. And one of the things he did was found another hospital. And the cool thing is, we think we've found the ruins of that hospital, but we have contemporary records of his ministry. Let me quote. Masona built a hospital, enriching it with a large patrimony and appointing ministers and doctors. Huh, I like that. That's almost tandem in one thing. Ministers, people of the word, and doctors, people of deeds. To serve travelers and the sick, giving them this command that the doctors, I'm sure we've got some doctors here, the doctors should go throughout the entire city without ceasing and whoever they found that was sick, be they slave or free, Christian or Jews, were, uh, they were to carry in their arms to the hospital until with God's help they returned the patient to his former health. And, listen to this, and the townsfolk burned with love for Masona. Through his sweet affection, he drew the minds of all the Jews and pagans to the grace of Christ. And I, I wanted to quote that line because it's so significant. Masona was not just a social justice warrior. He's not just a crazy, progressive, lefty into good deeds. He was a red-hot evangelist, preaching the word, winning people to Christ, but also meeting their bodily needs. He saw the human as a whole. The gospel met their spiritual needs, his hospital ministry, their physical needs. And this is a point I want to make about the sixth and final face I want to introduce you to. You may never have heard of him, but his name is Eligius. He too ended up a bishop, but he didn't, didn't start out that way. And this is in the middle of the seventh century. So we're like 640s, 50s. This is the so-called dark ages. Just a, here's a hot tip. No one who knows about the middle ages calls them the dark ages. There were no dark ages. There were little lights going off all through the so-called dark ages. And Ligius is one of them. He is Europe's most famous and wealthy jewelry maker. He literally made the crown jewels for European kings and queens. And the elites who could afford his wares would buy bracelets. They would even buy clothes, robes, completely laced with gold. That was his specialty. But he had a crisis of conscience, a spiritual crisis somewhere in uh, the middle of the 7th century when he felt that he should be doing something for Christ. And the biography of him actually reports that he would be making his crowns and his bracelets and all this stuff while reading a book. I don't know if his work suffered as a result, but he'd been reading books, the Gospels, and the Ancient Fathers. He'd be reading Basil and Gregory and so on. 
But it so got to him that the love of Christ should compel him to do something. He started part-time being a jewelry maker and part-time going out and seeing if he could meet needs. He'd apparently go out with bags of coins and whenever he saw the poor, he would give them uh, coins. When, whenever he uh, heard of slaves being sold, he'd turn up to the slave market and purchase all of them on the spot. And then he said to them, you can either stay here or go back to your homes and I'll pay your way. We have a near contemporary account of his work. Let me read it to you so you know I'm not making this up. He had this work much to heart. Whenever he understood that slaves were to be sold, he hastened with mercy and soon ransomed the captive. He liberated both sexes and from different nations. He freed all alike, Romans, Gauls, Britons, and Moors, but particularly the Saxons, way up in the north of Europe, who were as numerous as sheep at the time. And when he ran out of coins, he gave more by stripping what he had on his own body from his belt and cloak to the food that he needed and even his shoes, so long as he could help the captives. And again, he's not just a social justice advocate. He too was a red-hot evangelist. And we know this because this account goes on. The pagans received him with hostile spirits and adverse minds at first. Yet gradually, Eligius began to introduce the word of God among them by the grace of Christ. And a great multitude left their idols and converted. You would see many people hurry to repent. Why oh, don't we long to see that? People hurrying to repent. Give up their wealth to the poor, free their slaves, and many other works of good in obedience to his precepts. You see, it's not word without deed. It's not deed without word. It's both together. All six of my besties embodied this tandem principle. They radically demonstrated the message of Christ's love and sacrifice by deeds of love and sacrifice. It's exactly what the Lord said would happen. You are the light of the world. So let your light shine that others may see your good deeds and Glorify your Father in heaven. This is how the ancient Christians won the world. And we can do it again. We can. I told you at the outset about that terrible report card Christians got saying that we're judgmental, hypocritical and so on. But actually, that was just 10 to 6 of the top 10 perceptions of Christians. You know, the weird thing is, the top five were all positive. Here are the top five. Honest, faithful, kind, loving, caring. And when this report card came out, Christians were scratching their head thinking, how is this possible? How, how are, in the top 10 perceptions of Christians, are the you know, the bottom five of that top 10, all negative, and the top five are all positive. It's weird, like even statistically, how do you get your head around that? Is, is there this big cohort of Australians 
that has simply negative thoughts about Christians and a slightly bigger cohort that has positive thoughts about the Christians. The researchers actually explained it to us and they explained, no, 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 no. It's the same survey respondents who will tick hypocritical and loving. It turns out the same respondents are there going, Christians, what do I think of them? Oh, yeah, there's that hypocritical, judgmental church down the road. Hate them. Oh, but then there's Auntie Lisa. She's into God and she's beautiful, caring, loving, right? That's what they're doing. It's like they have two Christianities in their head at the same time. One Christianity that is all the bully. Another Christianity that is all the love and kindness and cleaning up the mess of the world. But it's both Christianities in their head at the same time. And here's the thing I want to say. How we behave can activate one or other of those Christianities in the minds of those who don't believe. It doesn't take much of a Christian being a jerk in public for people to go, oh yeah, Christians, that's right, they're always judgmental like that. And equally, it doesn't take much of an act of kindness in your community or a visit to someone who's sick or a financial contribution to people in need for them to go, oh yeah, that's right, Christians, they'll always be there to support you. So here's my word. We do have a word to proclaim to this world. It is that God entered the world in Jesus Christ because he loves us so much. That he sacrificed himself on a cross and rose again so we might all be forgiven. That is our word. But we have deeds as well, friends, to be the light of the world. And our deeds are world We know you don't like us much, but we love you in Christ's name. And we will, like our Lord, sacrifice ourselves for your good in whatever way we can. Tandem. Gospel word, gospel deed. I am confident that despite the scary decline of Christianity in this country, you can turn this around through your words and through your deeds. So please, Lord, please empower us to speak and to do and to be the light. John, huge, huge thanks for traveling over, spending the weekend with us. Uh, John just gives uh, a fresh and unique, encouraging voice to the family of Ada Bible Church. We're just super, super grateful. And I don't know how this hit you today. Uh, My hope for you moving into your week. Uh, May our gracious God be pleased to alert you to some needs that surround you, that you may be in a specific place, in a specific moment, able to meet. May God open your eyes to the needs that surround you. 
Thank you so much for being here today. We'll see you next week.